Hello and welcome to another episode of Hammer Time, a property perspective. My name is Paul Zamalis and a few weeks ago we set out to hand the microphone over to a number of professionals in the real estate industry to get their opinion on what has been going on, in particular with COVID-19. Question on everyone's minds is, what does the collateral damage look like post-COVID-19 when it comes to property values? We thought a good person to speak to would be Managing Director of the Melbourne office, Mr. Tony Kelly, former Victorian President of the Australian Property Institute, to see how he and the business are handling these times and how they're planning for the months ahead. Tony, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Valuations are an integral piece of the real estate environment. How do you value something in this season of unprecedented circumstances? Look, fundamentally, not much changes for, for valuers. Valuers are people that are expected to report the market, and we are quite careful. In fact, there are many court precedents where the valuers are aware of, where we're conscious about not being in front of the market or, or predicting the market. Fundamentally, uh, we're here ready to report the market. We, we obviously analyse the, the market, and we try and put context around why buyers and sellers are behaving the way they do. But in terms of the way we go about valuation, not a lot has changed at the moment. The problem is, which I think your question is is alluding to, is what's over the hill. So we do expect that the data that we rely on will diminish in terms of sales volumes uh, are likely to, to come off. I'm already seeing part of that part of that happen in the marketplace. There's not a lot of good reason to have your property on the, on the market at, at the moment in light of the uncertainty and, and the virus. So we are expecting to get a, a drying up, if you like, of sales activity, which will mean that we don't have the normal evidence that we, we like to have as valuers that we can base our assessments on. So the problem, if you take that out another another step or two, uh, the problem is that if we're you know linking evaluations back to what is effectively evidence that's come from an older market, and we know that market has changed, and some of those markets may no longer be relevant. Why? How do we reflect that in our in in our assessments? And this is where the you know some subjectivity comes comes into the equation, I guess it wouldn't it wouldn't be right for a, a valuer to simply determine a valuation based on on old data. And in this case it's not that old. If we if we only think back, you know, December or even even January, uh, most markets were, were going along quite quite well in the residential market. And to think back a relatively short period of time and where we are now, we've had a and an enormous change very that's occurred very very quickly. So we still are sort of if if you if you like living off old old data at the moment, but we we, we know that it's probably painting a picture that is more positive than than it, what is likely to be the the reality at at the moment. So how how do you manage that subjectivity? I mean the the power of a valuer is to take what's in front of them and to apply a tailored you know valuation on the merits of each property. How do you manage that, and you know how is that being done in the business right now? At the moment we can only rely on the data that that we have, even though we know it's it's 
you feel like a little bit tainted because of what's happened with the virus. In some property types, for instance, if you look at look at retail, let's take retail for the moment, we know that there's an emphasis on landlords and tenants to uh, negotiate in good faith and come up with a an agreement, if you like, that will in effect discount the rent. So as a value, we're going out to look at a retail shop, for instance, at the moment, the contracted rent or the rent that is described in the lease, normally the valuer would take that as as the amount being paid to, to the landlord. We no longer make that easy assumption. And whilst we've always applied some degree of testing over that, the assumption is now we or the assumption is now removed and we, we're required to dig deeper in into what's transgressed between the landlord and the tenant. So is that rent being paid? Is there an agreement that's been reached between the landlord and the tenant to, to in effect, back, back that rent off? And then what does that impact does that have on the valuation? In that case, Paul, the valuation, the impact is, is short-term. So uh, we're making a, you know, a value I would today make a minor adjustment. So the letting up a period in the calculations might, and I'm probably getting a bit too technical here, might be a little bit longer than would normally be the case two or three months ago. Um, and there would be some sort of um, uh, deduction for the fact that there has been uh, an agreement reached between a landlord and a tenant to back that rent off for the, ne- for the next six months or so. So that's... That's one example, but how do you, how do you apply? You know, that's that's something that we have in front of us that actually is coming from government legislation. But in many other property sectors, we we don't have that. But notionally, we will we will understand that the buyers of yesterday are probably not seeing that today, or if they are, they're, they're highly cautious and, and like all of us, waiting waiting to see what's happened. So the market is in this. You know, many of the property markets are in this state of, of of flux, or just waiting to see what's happening. What the value, how the valuer reflects that. We all we all know, and we all hope that valuations and property values aren't aren't going to drop off a cliff. And hopefully, we come we come out of this, and there's um there's a return to to normality. So certainly, we're not quick to be the doomsday. Um, um, provider here. Uh, we don't think that's the case, but uh, certainly there's a, a judgment where as we get some sales coming through, we might start to see a softening in, in yields or, or pushing out of, of, of uh, vacancy periods or incentives might, might increase. And we get to see some of those things coming through, but by and large, as I sit here today, most of our valuations are not reflecting any sort of capital value reduction. So, Tony, you mentioned retail. What about the values in other parts of the market, i.e. residential? Are you seeing the same sort of uh, changes or are you applying a similar sort of mindset to the residential market as well? Yeah, Paul, look, there's certainly a slowdown in the residential markets, but the general market is still holding up. We do not have evidence that prices have fallen. We do ask ourselves why in this market would you be looking to sell a, a property because it probably wouldn't be to your, your advantage. And certainly, you know, we, we speak to real estate agents on a daily basis 
and many of them, and, and certainly their industry is, is hurting at the moment, simply because there is not a lot of sales activity at the moment. So in that general market, no movement to report. Prices are, you know, by and large holding up. If I look at the prestige market, we have seen a couple of sales of late that do reflect a uh, minor downward shift. And when I say that, I'm talking about probably 5% across that across that market. But again, we're a bit nervous to say that's uh, applying to all of the prestige markets because we don't have a great volume of sales to rely on. But what we do know from experience and times of, of the past is that the prestige market will be more volatile compared to the uh, general run-of-the-mill in suburban suburban markets. So um, that's that's where we're seeing residential sitting at the moment, Paul. And in terms of, of the full impact, it sounds to me like right now, if I was deciding to sell, there's really no evidence per se that says you, you might get less. And if it was, it's only minor. So if I was planning to sell in three to six months, Tony, is that the window you expect to see the full impact or longer? Well, if we look back at, and actually I was looking at this the other day, looking back at um, what you know previous disruptions we've had to, to the economy, obviously people talk about the, the GFC. I think there was a you know, stock market adjustment in 2011. So there's, there's, there's been events in the past that we can draw some, uh, some line to as to what might happen coming out of, out of this. What we need to look at, there's a few things that drive most markets. One of them is uh, obviously confidence, and that relates to whether people have got their got their jobs. So I think this time around, there's a bit more uncertainty around that. The other thing that's been a big driver, particularly in the capital cities of, of late, is immigration and, and new people coming into the country. Uh, certainly in that, if you, if you isolate out that apartment market, might be one of those markets that you think about there. And we can foresee that, yeah, and, the, and as the government is saying, and that, you know, as high as 50% or more of the, the typical immigration rates are, are likely to are likely to cease or come back uh, dramatically in the next, you know, six, six months. So those markets are probably a couple of markets there where you would have a cautious eye on. And it will be um, interesting to see how those play out. Some of our larger clients building high-rise apartments, are, you know, if they, if they haven't started and uh, still in that planning phase, they're certainly holding them back a little bit at the moment, just waiting to see what's going to happen over the next six months. And people's behaviour, obviously, we're you know, it's fair to say we've changed the way we're we're living our lives. Uh, do you believe that these behaviours will? continue at least for the medium term and what influence will they have on our market we had a, uh, a national hookup around the country the other day just and, and this was a hot topic it, it will vary depending on the property type of of course i mean there's some, those fundamental things around job security what the economy is doing uh, competing competing investment options if you think about you know, if, if we do come out of this and you've got your, you know, you're reasonably secure in, in your job and you, and you may have a bit of money to spare, then then, then does that re- represent uh, opportunity? Will there be a push a push on some, some markets potentially because the, you know, your, your, your interest in the banks not, not doing you, 
not making you a lot of money at the moment. The, the stock market's quite volatile. So property's always had this safety, uh, perception of, of safety. So maybe, may, we can see a day when maybe this comes to the fore a bit quicker than perhaps the stock market does for for some of those people. But your question about behaviour is is one we're scratching our head about. Is it, you know, are people going to return to, you know, restaurants? Are they going to return in the way that we're used to seeing them? Are people going to want to eat out three nights a week or, or is there a, you know, is there an appreciation for the simpler things? And then you've got this safety thinking about it as well, simply because the government say, it's okay to go out in threes or tens now, does that immediately mean that people will just flood back into to pubs and hotels? So there'll definitely be uh, an easing back in and certainly, you know, I'm a property valuer, not a demographer, but you would think that, uh, or a behavioural scientist, but you would, I, I, it's hard to see that people will immediately switch back to to where we were late last last year in the way they behave. Another example, poor might be retail. Are people now used to um, buying online and therefore see that as a as a as a more day to day option compared to you know walking down down the street? These are the things that we're we're yet to see. And on top of all of that, I guess, the other thing that we think about is value is, is what is the government going to do on the on the end of this? If we look back at those past hiccups, if you like, in, in the economy, the government will normally see property as a way to ignite economies. And whether they do something with stamp duty and first-home buyers, they do start to play with that. So is there some government policy that's being drafted at the moment that no one knows about? I'm, I'm, I certainly would imagine that the government are thinking how they how they get out of this after all. They've you know, spent over $200 billion on, on trying to keep everything going as best they can, and there has to be some way to, to right that ship. At some point, we would have thought. Well, I suppose just to sort of focus on that, Tony, if we don't go back to the spend that we had, what do you think the flow-on effect will be? Well, retail will certainly start to see uh, problems, big shopping centres in, in, in particular. So that's that's one that stands out, whether you're industrial markets. You know, there's a case that says maybe maybe they become a little bit more healthier. Maybe if, if there's more online and movement of goods directly, to the consumer, then maybe that's an area where logistics and industrial type properties are actually seen as, as you know, something relatively safe. Housing is always going to be there. It's just a matter of how quickly it grows. And if you look back at the graphs, if you like, of, of those past events, you will see that whilst there's a lot of noise at the time around residential property and my property's come back 5%, etc., cetera, they're the headlines we we read at the time, but if you actually look back now, they they basically flattened out or there might have been a minor dip before they take off again. So residential is quite resilient in the in the medium term to, to long run. Hospitality assets, yeah, look, they're, you know, they're all cash flow and people walking in the door a bit like, like retail, so you can imagine that they're going to uh, find it difficult to... Um, 
to sustain their businesses and therefore vacancy rates push up and then, you know, you can imagine that that flows through to uh, those values on those types of assets being a bit more disadvantaged compared compared to others. So I guess you do have to look at, you know, uh, across the, all the different property types, healthcare assets will remain strong. You would have think if, if anything, there might be a, there might be a, a premium put, put on those going forward, certainly the good ones. So and, it is going to going to vary. And Tony, if we just uh, on that topic, if we talk about adaptation and evolution, I've you know, the family's got a retail asset, and one thing that I've been posing to them is: Do we change the way we look at retail? Do we go away from apparel and what we've known it to be the last ten years, and look to it as being a place where the lawyer, the accountant, services can return with a shop front as opposed to being in an office, in which case retail just changes face, but it continues to chug along nicely. Absolutely. I would agree with that. I was fortunate enough to have an overseas trip 18 months ago, and that was something that I noticed in some of those European cities where there was more emphasis on the community hub, if you if you like. You'd walk down the main street and you would still see the the accountant and, and the lawyer and the small the small grocery shop and the small butcher shop and you know and and less of the big bulky shopping centres where you jump in your car. Obviously, all of that usage will ultimately be driven by rental rates. And if you can get more from a shop user compared to a lawyer, then then that will direct those those uses ultimately. But you're certainly right; that is a, a valid and, and and likely fallback position. Well, actually, there's a couple of shops that have sold in Canberra. Well, recently, one of them is a, a major major bank that he's uh, just exchanged contracts this week for, with one of our clients, and and those yields are setting you know, exactly where they, they thought they would they would be, and that that is a we talk about that far because it's one that has sort of started and finished within this period of, of virus, if you like. And it wasn't something that came onto the market late last year and is therefore a bit of a hangover that drifted into the, the virus category. It's something that start and finished there. And the old story, good properties always sell well. And, and, and that is one of the features I think we are going to see pull out of out of the next six months is this disparity between, you know, the good and the not-so-good properties. And we'll go back to that fundamental, um, you know, saying that we've always, always said that good properties always sell well and then in a poor market you notice this disparity between an A and a B class asset. So I think we're going to see a, li- a little bit more, more of that and I think we're going to see purchasers looking more closely at the tenant type that's sitting in there, are they affected by this? Do they have a sustainable business? Whereas in the past, they may have only looked at the lease and didn't care who was sitting behind it as long as someone was paying the rent. So I can see that as being, you know, buyers being a bit more diligent around who's actually sitting behind that lease covenant on their asset. So Tony, adaptation and evolution, how does that look like in your industry? We know technology, particularly in this time, we're using more of it. Is our acceptance of technology going to influence the way valuations are done in the future? What does that look like for you and for Heron Todd White and businesses like yours? Look, I've been told for years, 20 years or more, that, that valuers won't, won't be around forever. And there's more valuers across Australia today than, than there ever 
has been. In that said, I do I do think there is is room, and obviously there's there's already a lot of the major banks are using some of this AI and automated valuations, and I think there's a place for them. I, I don't think everybody going to the bank that needs an adjustment on their loan, you know, should trigger a, a full value full valuation every every time, because you need to remember that a valuation is only one part of if we're talking about lending and borrowing, uh, it's only one part of the equation, and the banks always look at the, you know, the strength of the borrower and the track record, and all those things account for a lot. So, you know, I, do, I, I think it's working okay at the moment, and a lot of those automated tools actually require inputs from valuers. So, a lot of the data that we are sending into the banks on a daily basis is actually being harvested and fed into those uh, algorithms that are generating a lot of those um, a lot of those systems so look it was something that we were fearful of and I guess a lot of industries are fearful of you know AI and change but I, I think that we all always see a need for the independence of a, of a value and really that's what drives a lot of and banks and, and clients and people to to come to a valuer because in the trans transaction process often there is there's a need for someone independent to come along. You know, we're at fee for service, we're not driven by commission, we don't you know, it doesn't matter to us if if the value is a bit high or low in terms of does that influence the fee that we get? No, it doesn't. I think a lot of banks in particular use us because of that independence as well as, you know, the expertise. Because you're right, valuations are not purely scientific. There is a blend of of artistry, if, if you like, and, and expertise and history and how long you've been in the game. And this, this I think your whole podcast is honing in on we are about to walk through a, a space in time where it's probably more important than ever that valuers uh, slow down, really think about uh, what's going on here because we don't want to be over over negative or over positive you know that's the ultimate challenge we've got a set of data in the market and we're going to go through a period where there's not too many sales over the next three to four months that we can we can look to as absolute proof of what what the market's doing and then therefore do we you know how do how do we mold that into a valuation that sets out that's based on good logic and and market market evidence Thank you for your time, Tony, and your valuable insights. Our three calls from today, our first call, maybe a little while to go before we feel the real impacts of COVID-19. Our second call, flight to quality in real estate. When other markets are perhaps fluttering around, we could see money coming back into real estate, particularly housing, industrial, and healthcare. And our third call, there's always a place for a valuer, and particularly at these times, a subjective analysis couldn't be more important. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Paul Zamalis. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Hammer Time, A Property Perspective. Don't forget to subscribe to iTunes or Spotify and we look forward to having you on the next episode.